Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Once again, thinking about everyone around the world and all the people who have been affected by the news, by not only war and terrorism, but by earthquakes and other tragedies that people need to be supported through. So we are sending all of our good wishes here from the show to everyone out there who needs to hear it right now and to all of you who might be suffering in one area of the world that has been hit hard. I want to also thank our listeners in Poland. Again, very interesting place for me to think about people listening to this show because of uh, my family's history there. It's very much appreciated, and I'm so interested to hear from you to let me know what speaks to you from that part of the world. So for today, we have Catherine Spearing. She's a certified trauma recovery coach and the founder of Tears of Eden, a nonprofit supporting survivors of spiritual abuse where she hosts its affiliate podcast, Uncertain. Catherine is also the host of the Trauma and Pop Culture podcast, and as a writer, Catherine has penned several nonfiction articles and is also the author of the historical romantic comedy Hartford, a novel that challenges gender roles in a patriarchal society. Hmm, go figure why that's a subject. It's a story that Catherine says should appeal especially to fans of Jane Austen. She has been a guest on a number of podcasts and a guest speaker at multiple events, and you can find more info on Catherine and her work at katherinespearing.com. Here's Catherine now. Today on the show... I have Catherine Spearing with me. I'm so happy to have you here. I want you to be able to talk about your experiences that led to all of the work that you're doing now uh, and your own show, et cetera, et cetera. So if you don't mind taking a few moments just to introduce yourself and letting us know a little bit about kind of your origin story and what brought you to this podcast today. Sure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. As you said, I am Catherine Spearing. I am the founder of an organization called Tears of Eden, which is a nonprofit dedicated to supporting survivors of spiritual abuse, specifically from the evangelical community. And the journey of how that started is um, I have both cult surviving experience from a Christian fundamentalist cult. And then I also left that and stumbled into evangelicalism that for about a decade, I thought was very different than what I grew up in and discovered it's actually not that different. It just looks a lot prettier and is a lot more buttoned up. And there are suits and ties and things that make it seem like it's a lot less controlling. But in general, there's a culture that sort of creates an environment for abuse to happen. And I discovered that when I was working at a church in California, where it was a chronic situation of spiritual abuse that was very similar to what I'd grown up with. And during that experience, I was talking to a bunch of people all over the United States that I had met. I have a seminary degree, and I was on the mission field, so I just knew a lot of folks kind of spread out all over the country, all over the world. I was just talking to people, hey, what do I do? Help me through this. What's going on? You know, you know, what do I do with this situation? And I started hearing stories that were very similar to mine, just kind of from everywhere. And this is long before... Ravi Zacharias is in the uh, headlines. This is before Carl Lentz from Hillsong is in the headlines. Mark Driscoll has been, you know, people knew about him, but there were a lot of different um, key figures that hadn't hit the headlines yet. And so there's this awareness that there was this pretty significant issue happening and that what I was experiencing was not isolated. And so the idea for Tears of Eden came out of that of just, it just started as like, we just need a place 
a hub, someplace that we can just go and find resources and connect with people who have been through something similar because a characteristic of a lot of the folks that I was talking to is we were just very isolated and didn't really know that many people who had gone through something similar. And so that's the catalyst for starting Tears of Eden. I'm also a trauma recovery coach. Um, I publish author. Art is a huge part of my healing process. And also I enjoy incorporating that into Tears of Eden and also with clients that I work with. Um, and so my uh, first novel came out in 2021. Um, and then I have a day job that helps fund my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. So you're a busy person and I'm sure, you know, like when you have something really on your mind, you can become a busy person. You really want to devote yourself to a cause and this can certainly become your cause. But I think it especially becomes one when you start getting feedback, when people out there are saying, oh yeah, this happened to me as well. And then you know that you've kind of hit onto this hot button issue that now you have the benefit of connecting with people over in a way that I think before the internet, before people being able to reach out, I'm sure is extremely, extremely difficult and, and isolating. What have you noticed about the responses? And also, have you gotten negative responses? A lot of people I talk to, and same thing with sometimes when I'll do a a, a podcast interview about a particular group, you know, I'll get some feedback where it, it kind of lets me know that a person is feeling like they have to say something in order to uphold their own ideas still sort of without without having too much internal conflict or that they know that they need to uh, speak out against what my guest has said because they know they're going to get kudos for doing it right from their group. There are a lot of reasons people will will do it. So what have you noticed about the responses, I guess, the, the good and the bad? Well, when I said that I noticed that evangelicalism was a lot similar to the fundamentalist cult that I grew up in, that is now the second time that I have now said that publicly because I felt that way for about three years <laughs> and became more and more aware of the similarities as I've been doing this work. And I know that is not going to be received well. And so typically I try to stick with that common thread of most of us think abuse is bad. And most of us think it probably shouldn't be happening in the church. And so that tends to be sort of the equalizer and the starting point. And folks who identify as evangelical or they don't identify as evangelical, but that they are, there tends to be more pushback in terms of, well, you know, not every church is like that. And just like wanting me to make sure that I know not every church is abusive. Um, very similar to, you know, when someone's like talking about feminism and people are like, well, not every man is like that. So just like a very similar um, needing or or like, well, my church is safe. Like, I wish you could come to my church. My church is safe. Um, and so that that type of response of just like this, just a need to believe that evangelicalism slash Christianity and all that kind of stuff is inherently good and that this is happening in outlier places and not happening kind of everywhere. Um, and so that's probably it's and with with spiritual abuse as I'm sure you are familiar and your listeners are familiar. It's it's confusing. It's convoluted. It's intertwined with what a lot of people have come to know as Christianity. So breaking that out and kind of figuring out like what's abuse and what's just good old average Christianity is just very complicated and complex. And so there are a lot of people who do stuff like break down scriptures and like this is actually what this word in the Greek means, but that's not uh, something that we're specializing in. We're trying to just specialize in survivors who know that they are survivors and providing resources and care and community for them, as opposed to trying to convince someone that they have experienced spiritual abuse. Yeah, so that's kind of where we try to stay. And in terms of just pushback is more that just like, 
well, you know, not all churches are abusive or, you know, not all pastors are predators, that sort of thing. So that's tends to be the gamut of what we interact with. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. And then also I'm very curious about this title, Tears of Eden. I remember learning when I was growing up, when I learned about the Bible and I learned about the story of the Garden of Eden. And now thinking back on it, it's so problematic. And so I just thought how interesting, as we're going to be talking about patriarchy. uh, So uh, one of the things that became, you know, like when you learn something, when you're literally like, okay, sure. And you don't really think like, could that be? Or what are the ramifications of this? Or how much misogyny has been infused into this story from the get-go that I, as a woman and others, as people who, you know, were born assigned male, are going to be kind of gleaning from this? And what messages are we taking home? And the whole idea of, you know, the reason that they needed to leave the Garden of Eden was it was Eve's fault, right? The woman's fault. Well, thanks for that. And then also that Eve didn't really originate as a whole person, but just from the rib of Adam, just a piece, an appendage of a male. You know, again, okay. I I always thought these stories were a bit of a stretch anyway, but still, I didn't realize how powerful these messages could be overall and how deeply embedded they get into the psyche. And then also how much permission is given to look down upon or mistreat the person whose fault it is that they needed to, or the gender of the person whose fault it is that they needed to leave the Garden of Eden. And that, you know, Eve did not get created in equal measure to Adam by God, originating kind of on her own. So how interesting just about that as we just look at these stories. What do you think about these kinds of stories now that you think back on them? I'll start by saying that, like, my whole journey to wanting to be a minister in the church and go to seminary started with a genuine love of the Bible. And I would say that I still love the Bible, strangely. I have a very different view of it and a different perspective of it now than I had in the community that I was growing up in, which was a very literalist, like taking things very, very literally, and then went into um, working for the church and going to seminary where it wasn't quite as literal. Like they, they had, at least the seminary that I went to, had an understanding of context and cultural context in which things were written and sort of taught that. Um, and so that was really helpful for undoing the things that I, the very literal things that I had been taught. And so having that skill set in my wheelhouse was really, really helpful. But then I would say the Bible also helps me recognize that there are some things off an evangelicalism of just like, there's some pretty consistent inconsistencies happening. And what the church was choosing to emphasize and choosing to ignore, they weren't following the Bible. <laughs> so even if they, even if they were saying we follow the Bible, like they weren't actually following the Bible. And then there's the whole conversation about the problematic things within the Bible themselves. I don't know if we want that to happen for the scope of this conversation, um, but I'm I'm definitely in my journey more open to acknowledging the problems that are actually in the Bible and just saying that's a problem and kind of leaving it there. Like, I don't need to prove to you that the Bible's still good it just has this one little thing that we wish it was, wasn't was in here. I don't feel the need to do that because that's literature and that's books, you know, like they have problems. I do think that it's pretty remarkable that all of these books are written by different people and they have a very similar message. That's pretty cool. There's not a book like that. But I also think it's a little problematic that a bunch of men decided which books were going to be in the Bible. That's a little problematic. I learned that in seminary. They just kind of flew over that. And I was like, wait, 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 wait a second. (laughs) Council of Nicaea. Wait, wait, wait. You mean God didn't tell us that these books were supposed to be in the Bible? A bunch of men decided? Wait, 
wait, (laughs) you can't just brush over that. That's a pretty significant detail that most people don't know. So yeah, that's kind of just like an overview of how I see those things now. I mean, I grew up learning the Bible. I mean, in you know, Jewish perspective. I know it's called the Old Testament. We call it the, we call it the Bible. It's not an old or new anything. It's just what is. But I remember learning, um, uh, of course, about uh, Jacob's twelve sons and the twelve tribes of Israel. And then it wasn't until maybe in my forties that I heard they had a sister named Dina, who her story is that she had been raped. And Dean, or Dean in, in Hebrew means judgment and, and uh, or justice, which is interesting. Uh, but where was she in the whole story? I mean, I was even in the musical. <laughs> and like, she was never, she was never, t- I was just one of the backup singers, but still. Um, I, <laughs> um, but still, I was, where was she? Why, why did we never hear about her? And so there's so many people whose stories we don't hear about because they're just not somehow relevant. And it's still true today. When you see things going around the internet, when you see things like going around Facebook or Twitter or wherever, and it will say, this person, this man was credited with having invented blah, blah, blah. We never heard about the fact that his ideas came from this woman, <laughs> who was his professor or something, or it was actually all these other women who have invented things, or the composer who we've heard of, whose sister was actually even more talented, but had to give up her role as being in the spotlight once she got married or had children. And the spotlight then went to her brother, who said that he is admittedly less talented. So the the hidden piece of so many people and people also who, I mean, you know, gays and lesbians, people who have different disabilities, the people who go have gone into the shadows for all these years. Um, I'm sure it's it's very hard to kind of reconcile that. And it's nice to know that now there's a little more discussion about it so that things can even out a bit. Because yes, there are great stories in the Bible. There are some good messages, allegories. Yeah, that's a good way to be. Sure. Uh, maybe not so much, but anyway, it's worth it for to learn it so you can talk about it. But I think about you coming out of the shadows, you know, and being able to be a presence and how meaningful that is. So let's then go back in time, shall we? And let's hear more about you and what life was like for you uh, during your your first incarnation on this world. What was it like? Yeah, you said coming out of the shadows. I feel like that that word has been like coming up in just conversations uh, recently. Um, I'm working on a book about spiritual abuse, and one of the titles has the word shadows in it. <laughs> and I'm I'm trying to like I don't want to be too dramatic, but then at the same time, it does kind of capture spiritual abuse a little bit in terms of it just being there. And we're not always aware that it's there and it's kind of like hovering. Um, yeah. So you mentioned Dinah and or Dina. And I remember uh, being told about that story uh, because she gets brutally raped, uh, gang raped. And uh, and then her her brothers respond by murdering everybody in the town. A very violent story. And I remember being told in the fundamentalist world that I grew up in, that that was a message for women that they shouldn't leave home and they should stay under the authority and protection of their father and their brothers and then later their husband. And that is not at all what that story is about, but it was a powerful message. You leave home, you get raped. And in terms of that, I was also told wasn't supposed to prepare to have a career. Uh, I was supposed to prepare to be a wife and a mom, and I didn't need to have a career. And there was a lot of fear infused into having a career. And one of them was uh, you might be sexually harassed by your boss. First of all, it was just assumed my boss would be male. One, that's a problem. And then two, that that would be happening 
entwined with all of the sexual abuse and exploitation that was happening within the community. Things like the obligation sex message, women aren't allowed to refuse their husband's sex. Um, The fact that like that was, you know, covering up so that you don't tempt men and that if a man is tempted and sexually assaults you or, you know, comments negatively on your body or comments on your body at all, it's your fault for what you wore um, and not being so heavily put on the women of our bodies. But this also this underlying message of like, you're saving your body for your husband. And the only person you can see or enjoy your body is your husband. There was no messaging of like self-enjoyment or self-pleasure or even pleasure for the woman at all. Like that, that was even something on the table at all. So that was just the world that I grew up in in this uh, space of basically I think the the main characteristic was that idea of like you're pre- being prepared to be a wife and mom and having that message put on me pretty early and then when I was around 16, um, I would say that that's when my family became a cult. And my, and that became very overt. And I started being, we were already homeschooled, but education started being limited because why do you need this? You're just going to get married. Um, You're just going to have kids. Um, And then all of our education or training had went, became very like home, homemaker focused. And when people would ask me where I was going to college, my father would jump in and say, she's preparing to be a wife and mother. She's not going to college. As if it was like this like really wonderful thing and everyone should be doing it. And that was genuinely what was believed. Women who had careers, especially if they had kids, were very looked down upon. Um, and uh, people who put their kids in public school were very looked down upon. Um, and so I was infused with this like fear of independence, of being autonomous and and infused with this belief that I was inherently deceived. You mentioned Eve earlier. The, the messaging around that was Eve was deceived. That is why women need to be under men because they are easily deceived. And the reason the man got cursed and had work cursed was because he let his wife influence him. Message there, don't let your wife influence you. Don't let your life, wife manipulate you. Um, and and all in all, women were portrayed as these very manipulative, conniving creatures that needed to be handled and controlled by a man. And it's easy to believe, man. It gets in you. It gets it gets deep in you. And I would say that the catalyst um, for me starting to wake up. Um, I would say I mentioned earlier that art was a part of my life and I and I was a writer and always enjoyed writing and was always making up stories. And I genuinely think that that contributed to me not completely cutting myself off from my intuition, that I was able to access that in order to write stories and had these little pockets of joy that I was sort of creating for myself within all of the stuff that was happening. Um, also, the fact that I was older sister had five uh, younger siblings and this maternal instinct came out and just like watching things happen to my siblings and and my love for to quote the bible uh love love casts out fear and that that love for my siblings so starting to supersede the fear that i had of authority figures and consequences and even to some extent god of just like if I love my sibling this much, and if God is love, then God has to love my sibling too. And God can't be happy that this is happening. And so those little like mental hurdles to get over some of the stuff that was being taught. Um, I was allowed to go to Guatemala for language school when I was 19 years old, because that was considered a useful skill to have to be able to speak Spanish. Um, And when I went to Guatemala at the time that I went, we didn't have things like FaceTime or Facebook. I don't even think Facebook was even around. And so I had like a calling card to call home and I was under instruction to call home once a week. Um, I had to go to an internet cafe to send emails. So I was kind of cut off from my family. And miracle of miracles, surprise, 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 
I didn't miss my family near as much as I was supposed to. And got this experience of like making decisions for the first time, having friends who were not Christians, like for the very first time when I was told that they were dangerous and like, you can't be, you can't make good decisions if you don't have Jesus inside of you making those decisions on your behalf. And so the fact that I would like meet people that weren't Christians and they cussed and they drank and they did all of the things that, you know, non-Christians do, but then they were like decent human beings and they were kind and they liked me and wanted me around. And, and we went on these adventures and chicken buses and to the hot springs and to the, you know, volcano and, and all in all just had this first time experience of like, I can breathe for the very first time. And really is like, well, why cults don't let you leave? <laughs> they, don't, they don't let you go away because this is why. Like the control and the influence needs to be there all the time. Constant, 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 constant. And I got this little glimpse of what it was like to breathe and to question if some of the things that I'd been taught maybe weren't right. And that started it. That was like a starting point. Okay. So I'm curious. Yeah. So let's, I want to be able to come back to that. I was curious also to come back to this idea about how, yes, this is why, you know, cultic groups don't let you out of their sight. This idea of you making decisions for yourself for the first time. And I'm sure uh, seeing that you were able that you could make decisions, that you didn't have to defer to someone else because you were incapable of making the right decisions for yourself, which is often what's taught, or that you didn't have to defer to a man to um, make a decision. What did you realize during that time in Guatemala that you were capable of? I think making friends that just weren't pre-programmed on my behalf. I mean, I I don't know if this came from, well, it had to have come from the environment, but just this like feeling of like no one outside of my family slash community is really going to care about me or support me, but then to encounter people who just knew me and did not know my family and they liked me. Like that was just like a very unique experience of like, oh, like I can build a relationship that is not rooted in my family or even my faith. And like, just this like experience of like being liked for myself and then going to classes and, and, and being in this place where I was like learning and being in a city that was like walkable and I could like go get a pastry on my way to class or, um, and just having, this experience of that was a, like just a very sensory experience. When I think back on like Guatemala, like I think of like the smell of exhaust from the the trucks um, and just uh, the dirt in the streets and the the just experience of yeah, like my whole self was kind of there and in this space, and then I was able to live. You know, like. This like very small little planted seed of like, oh, I can survive outside of my family, which felt so dangerous. It felt so dangerous. And it was very, I was very aware. Don't let mom and dad know how happy you were. Like, don't let them know that you were like, didn't want to come home. (laughs) Don't. Like, pretend everything is fine. Pretend everything is fine. Um, but once it starts, it, it don't it don't stop. Freedom, freedom is a tantalizing carrot to follow for sure. <laughs> so, but it was it was almost a decade before I I finally left, though. So with that little that little itty bitty little slice, um, it still took almost 10 years to fully leave. Right, which I would love to be able to talk to you about because the people will wonder why they stayed in something after they started noticing that maybe this wasn't right for them or it wasn't them. But still, there are a lot of reasons that people stay 
and valid reasons. And sometimes they're fear-based reasons and not having a foothold necessarily in the world outside quite yet, knowing you might have to leave your family. There are a lot of reasons. So what what was it for you during those next 10 years that caused you to stay even after you got this taste of the good life, so to speak? Yeah, I think some of it was just, I mean, I was 19. So at the time, no college degree, no real like work experience that I could put on a resume. Did I have dreams of leaving? Sure. Um, I think that there was always a hope and expectation that it would get better because I was only 19. And so I'm like, maybe things will change. Maybe, you know, maybe my dad will change. Maybe my mom will change. Maybe, you know, maybe these things will get better. You know, maybe, maybe this is just a phase <laughs> and it'll, it'll go away. Uh, hoping and expecting. And I would have these conversations because the end goal was uh, marriage. And so maybe I will get married and that will be freedom. And then asking my father, like, if, if I don't get married, like at what point <laughs> do I get to like decide that I'm not getting married or that it's too late? And like we would go to these conferences of families like ours, Vision Forum, IBLP, people are familiar with that from Shiny Happy People. Um, and there would be these women there that were stay-at-home daughters who were like in 35 and 40. And I was just like, is that is that what is that what's gonna happen? <laughs> like, or and I would like talk to my parents. I'm like, are we okay with this? Like, is this really what you know? And I really think my parents just thought I was gonna end up getting married. I really, 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 really think that they had that expectation. And one of the reasons why they went to these conferences to like try and meet like-minded people. And one of the reasons why they stopped going is because it looked like the men were marrying outside of the community, not inside of the community. And so it's like, oh, like this is probably not a good place to find matches for our unmarried daughters. And so we stopped going to a lot of those things uh, after a while I think I just got tired of it was what eventually led to formulating a plan. And life was good. Like my parents are wealthy. I had my own room. I had a walk-in closet. My father would take us on these extravagant trips. And so there was this illusion of everything is great and fine. My parents have a massive home and a lake house and a boat. And so there were like all of these things that kind of made it shiny. And like, and then plus I am infused with this fear of having a career and having a job and like supporting myself. I was led and conditioned to believe that I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, that wasn't something I, that I was capable of doing. <laughs> Um, that that was a man's job to provide for me. Um, and so so there was that aspect. And I think the one of the catalysts, the next catalyst was when I was probably, I think, 22, 23. Um, still hadn't started college yet. Still hadn't had a ton of like work experience at that point. Um, and uh, my father got upset at me about something and told me I needed to apologize. But I just remember thinking like I didn't do anything wrong. And normally I would just apologize. If he told me I was wrong, I would just say I was wrong and like, just admit like, sure, whatever. Like dad says I'm wrong. I must be wrong. Come up with something <laughs> to like, to, to like agree. Um, and this moment, it was just so very clear to me. It was not wrong. Like I was not wrong. I was like, no, I'm not apologizing. I'm not apologizing. I'm not apologizing. And it was a standoff for like two weeks. Uh, he wouldn't let me drive the cars. He told my siblings they weren't allowed to drive me. So I was basically like grounded at like 22 um, in my home. And just like the standoff of just like, and this just real clear experience of like, my father can be wrong. And like, this is not okay that he is forcing me, coercing me into apologizing. And my apology was a that to, to finally end this standoff was a total lie. And like, so I'm lying about repentance now. It was just like this feeling of like, and then this 
awareness that because he told me I couldn't leave the house and cut me off from driving the cars that he owned and told my siblings they couldn't drive me either. And because he owned the cars, like he was in charge. And this reality of like, I, the only way out is money. Like I need, I need money. I need a job and I need, I need a car and I need a degree and I need to be able to pay for my life. And so that started the plan, which was all in my head because I was terrified to write it down. But that was like when the plan started for getting out. And because I had a plan, I was able to fake it because it was like a a moment in time. Like I have to do this in order to leave and just come up with this like strategy of getting the things that I needed and the resources that I needed so that I could eventually leave. Okay. That notion that you found yourself apologizing and then you were needing to lie just to end the interchange and having to do something that didn't feel right, that just didn't feel right to your conscience, but that was the only way out of it. Um, I think about that you know, I talk to my clients about how sometimes when they're with people who are difficult, they find themselves needing to placate, they're needing to be the salve in the moment, you know, and just make sure everything goes smoothly, but that they will kind of be crossing their fingers behind their back because they know this is not, this is not the truth. And I need to at least, you know, make myself aware, like I know this, you know, I'm doing this for survival, but this, is not true. Right. And people also who are used to being in charge are used to being the ones to receive the apologies. They are usually never in the situation of having to give them. And a lot of the people who have to give apologies do it in a half-hearted way because they're not sure that it's their fault. And sometimes they're not even sure what they're apologizing for, like in your situation. And you don't want to have to deal with, and this is not to say something about your dad, but it can feel like, oh, I, I'm needing to compromise my own ethics here to do the quote unquote right thing in this situation. So maybe the situation is not right. You know, it shifts the equation. Yeah. And those are very, very powerful moments of like choosing appeasement over self. And when you're like so aware I am sacrificing myself and like what I value or know to be true in order to appease so that this very unfair situation will end. It's just this very, very powerful experience of like, which one matters more? Like, which one really matters to me more? And in Christianity, they'll tell you yourself shouldn't matter. In fundamentalism, they tell you yourself shouldn't matter. And um, I don't know why. (laughs) Uh, The very, very, very small part of me felt at least that it shouldn't matter less than my dad. Maybe it didn't matter, but he didn't matter either then. <laughs> like, like, let's equalize this a little bit. Like, like what, what is the about this situation of like that one person gets to matter more if neither of us are supposed to matter? So what's going on here? And that just like inconsistency and those inconsistencies of of saying one thing and then doing something else or the rules only apply to everyone else, but then they don't apply to this person and those inconsistencies. And and those are the things that like, I would encourage people to look for. Like you don't, you know, that one inconsistency doesn't have to be the one thing that this person is bad and evil because they did this one thing, but they get to go in a little box and you get to hold on to it and you get to say, this thing, okay, and then this thing, and then this thing, and those yellow flags added up together eventually become this very glaring red flag. Um, and, it, and it might not happen right away. It might take a couple years of those things happening and and having the continual patterns, you know, of things are really, you know, classic like domestic abuse situation where things are really great and colorful and beautiful and everything's so much fun. And then a few months later, everything is horrible and 
total hell, total chaos, and just like these constant patterns of that and just like watching for those patterns, writing them down if it's safe. If you can't write it down, you can't write it down, but just like being aware of those patterns and those inconsistencies because it's going to be, especially in a spiritually abusive environment, sometimes the overt things that usually get people out, such as like a violent rape or a physical abuse situation that leaves marks on the body, those things don't always happen because they are good Christians in their minds and would never do that. And so they have that line that they're not going to cross, which is really just what's not going to get them put in jail. And so they're smart enough to know that. um, And so it's just going to be so subtle and just little things over time. Right. And and I think about going back to this idea of the, the inconsistencies and the things that feel like they don't quite come together. You know, if people are not supposed to matter, which is always an interesting idea, you know, that there are, it's talked about in different ways in different cults that people will be told that they don't matter or they might be told that they need to become an empty vessel. Either way, they can't have a self and they can't have expectations around that self to being protected and, you know, respected, et cetera. Although the inconsistency for me here in this story is that your father was demanding an apology, which means that he knew he mattered, right? Because people don't apologize to people who don't matter. I mean, that's what happens. I mean, there are a lot of people who I come across here in LA walking by people who are homeless, people bump into them, don't apologize a lot of the time because there's this sense that they don't matter. I mean, it, it kind of correlates, it goes together. And and so, which is a horrible thing. But at the same time, I'm thinking of your dad having this standard of behavior towards him, which means I think he knew that he mattered to a certain degree. And maybe that is how it is for men rather than women and and or if it is for women maybe only women who are very high up in you know the hierarchy and so it's hard for people to reconcile that and make sense of it especially for kids you know like why is this not making sense and people will find that when they leave these kinds of situations where they can't quite apply logic and consistency and an equation to different situations, they find that the world itself, as confusing as it is, actually makes more sense. The response you get has something to do with what you did or didn't do, but right there, not like what a pastor said or what, you know, you're told God thinks about it. Like the world feels much more tangible, I think, for a lot of people. You found that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think I was always surprised and I'm still surprised (laughs) that I could do this, you know, I, I, I can do this. I can I can be on my own. I can pay rent. I can own a car. I can have a savings account. I can I can do it. You know, like that just that still is a as a shock and a surprise. <laughs> uh, but I'm still like trying to convince myself this is real. Yeah, and I'm just yeah, I'm trying to think of like yeah, ways that the world was like less confusing. Um, yeah, and I think, I mean, one way I think that it's less confusing is it's like, I feel like the rules in evangelicalism slash the fundamentalist world is as long as you say the right things, you can be a total dick to people and it doesn't matter. Whereas I feel like out in the wider world, in general, you're supposed to be nice to people. And you're supposed to treat people with some dignity and respect. Not everyone does, but you didn't get a pass on it. You don't get a pass on it for being an asshole. Like that doesn't, whereas I feel like evangelicalism and especially the fundamentalism that I grew up in gave certain people a pass. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in the story that you were telling, and we're going back to this idea of Dina, but the lesson is that she shouldn't leave the house. What? How is that even on the table as a possible explanation for what should happen next? So the then the lesson really is that the perpetrators in this situation can get away with it, and it's the victim's fault for having it happen to her. 
Right. So that goes with how it's been in our our legal system up until recently and still is sure in some places, but around the world, like the what were you wearing question. Actually, that reminds me, and we're giving examples about things that make sense versus things that don't make sense. I work with people who say that they're not used to certain things mattering more than others. They're used to a life where they were caught in the weeds, like um, if they were called in, like this happened actually recently with a with a client who came out of, she was uh, part of FLDS uh, compound. She, she left, she started working somewhere and then she was called in to meet with her boss. And she was sure, first of all, that meant she was going to get into trouble because that was the culture. And it wasn't that, which she was shocked about, that it wasn't that she had done something wrong. But she was also sure that if she was getting into trouble, it was because of the length of her skirt. And the boss actually had nothing to, he, he wasn't upset. It was a male boss, but he wasn't upset with her. And he didn't care at all about what she was wearing. Uh, he just wanted to inform her about someone who was going to be coming on the staff. And he wanted her to mentor this person. Like he was giving her some sort of status there, which was shocking to her. She could be in this teaching role that he saw what she was capable of teaching. And it had nothing to do with if she was wearing heels, if she was wearing pearls, if she, whatever. Right. And, and she thought, wow, this actually has to do with the work that this has to do with my job. And it was so specific and then made sense. It was this tangible thing, but it was still, it's very hard, I think, to wrap your head around that as a possibility. Yeah, I would say a massive characteristic of the environment is confusion. Yeah, just constant confusion of, yeah, what what are the actual rules? <laughs> um, and, and when there's potential personality disorders involved, that can change on a dime and you just don't know. And then you infuse that with the Bible and this is God and this is, you know, you're supposed to obey your authority. You're supposed to respect your authority. You're supposed to follow this person and believe what they say because God is speaking through them, getting into a situation like your client was in where like you are rated on the, the quality of your work and that's it. You know, like there aren't special rules for <laughs> like, just do your job. Yeah. Like that just being feeling so simple, but there's got to be a catch here. <laughs> like there's got to be some secret agenda here. Yeah. And then when you get into like the evangelicalism of that agenda being there as well, of just, yeah, like these, all these secret rules and accidental violations of those rules and, and that just like confusion, 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 bewilderment, confusion, never really knowing, knowing that something's off and you don't quite fit, but never knowing why. And, and knowing that it's your fault for some reason, and it must be you and you are doing something wrong to figure out what it is so that you can fix it. And then it won't feel bad anymore, hopefully. Yeah, very confusing, very bewildering. And sometimes the wider world is is easier to navigate than than I was led to believe, for sure. And a lot less scary than I was led to believe, for sure. Right. Wow. So I'm wondering also, you mentioned stay-at-home daughters. And that's going to be a new term for people listening. No, I don't think everyone, but a lot of people listening. So what is this idea, this movement? Folks will probably be most familiar with is the Shiny Happy People um, docuseries. And the term stay-at-home daughter and then like Christian patriarchy movement, like those two things are pretty intertwined. And, and the Christian patriarchy part is really that that perspective of male leadership and male headship and female servitude and submission. But don't worry, everyone's equal in the sight of God, they tell you. <laughs> and everyone's just as important. They just have different roles. And so having um, this idea and this belief that like a woman's primary role is serving her husband. And then beneath that, the next layer is she needs to train to serve her husband. So logically, she, the 
person she should serve is her father in preparation for serving her future husband. The whole idea is she would never, ever be out from underneath the authority of a man unless she maybe got widowed. There are, you know, gray areas there. Um, But there wasn't really a gray area for a woman who never got married. Uh, I I know stay-at-home daughters who still stay at home and they're in their 40s and 50s uh, who never got married. And just that idea of the father always being, um, having the final say, there is a verse in, um, I think it's Leviticus, um, about fathers having the power to disavow their daughters. So if like a daughter makes a vow and then her father hears of it, he is allowed to say, no, she's not allowed to keep that vow. And that and that verse there's only daughters mentioned, like there's not sons. And so that's the verse that is used to say that a daughter will always be under the authority of a man and that a father has that usurping power to say um, who she can marry, what kind of job she can get, and if she can have a job, tell her what to think, tell her what to believe. A phrase that my father said all all the time was like, you should be sitting at my feet and learning from me. And so we, you know, it went even beyond just asking for permission for things. It was like just this active, basically worship of this person. And each father got to determine what that looked like for himself. Um, and that just happened to be the makeup of our family. Um, but yeah, it really gives just fathers the right to turn their family into a cult. I read an article the other day where the woman called it an evangelical daddy cult. And I was just like, oh, that was perfect. <laughs> perfect, 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 perfect description. Um, and so, yeah. And so when I, when I say that, calling my family a cult, like it had all of the characteristics and it was in studying like spiritual abuse for the nonprofit that I was like, I think what I grew up in was a little bit more extreme than even what I'm dealing with here with spiritual abuse, which led me to, you know, discovering those aspects of those dynamics of a cult and how those existed just within this family and that that's what it was set up to be. Honor, honor your father was taken really, really far. And they forgot that there's an honor your mother there part too, like, because your mother's supposed to be under the authority of a man as well. So it really was just honor father. Wives are children. Like they, their status is basically children. They're not, they're not equal partners in this culture community at all. They're just kind of in the same seat as, as children. Um, some people, I know where their marriages were arranged. I had many dreams slash nightmares of my father arranging a marriage. That never happened. And as far as I know, he never attempted to do that. But there was always that fear. And he had the power and the authority to do that. And I know a lot of women who maybe it wasn't an arranged marriage, but they were pressured by their parents to get married to a certain person or they knew that that person would please their parents. And so because of the environment, they just did it because even though no one said a word and I consider myself very lucky, very, very fortunate that I escaped without having to go through that. I don't know many people who escaped without having to go through that. I could, I honestly don't know any, um, I don't know any who managed to get out without getting married. Most people escape through marriage and by marrying someone. And that person just happens to be less abusive than what they grew up in. Or they ran away and married someone who wasn't a Christian or, you know, something like that. Most people escape through marriage. I honestly can't think of anyone who escaped without getting married. Um, I'm sure they're out there. If you're out there, email me. But I don't, I don't know anyone who managed to get out without getting married. Wow. And then, I mean, when people picture marriage, I mean, it's also good to think about how what you're saying is different than just a regular marriage where there is going to be the expectation also that of subservience and many children and probably no divorce. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All of the implied things. Yes. All the implied things. Okay. 
So then I, d- I don't know if you feel comfortable being open about this, but I'm wondering what you think about your mom's experience of this, of this life as this wife being designated also as the another child in the household. What was it like for her? It's very complex. Just thinking of my mom. And I would say that that relationship is present day. I feel like my father is like in the past. Like I don't have a relationship with him. There are moments where like a memory will surface that needs to be, you know, looked at and cared for. And um, I wouldn't say that there's no impact anymore. There still is. But in terms of causing pain um, and being this like constant source of sadness or grief or anger, um, that's not an a regular thing anymore. Uh, My mother, I would say that's a much more painful present day situation because I believed this deep down into my very depths of my bones that she stayed for her kids and to protect her kids. And then as soon as all of the kids left and were no longer minors, that she was going to leave him. I really believed that, Rachel. I really, really believed it. I don't know if that was just wishful thinking, denial, but it was very, very deeply embedded into me that that's what she would do. And she did not. Um, And so she stayed and has stayed. And in my opinion, has become much more militant on behalf of my father and his beliefs. And I have to say now, I don't believe that that's just coming from him, that he is, she's just his mouthpiece. That's what I believed growing up, that she was just his mouthpiece. I just slowly started to realize that this was also a belief that she has adopted and infused into herself. And yes, there's a trauma bond. Um, Yes, there is brainwashing. But she is the author of her own, in my opinion, is the author of her own abuse. And that's really hard when I saw her as an ally for most of my growing up years. And there's this part of her being, you know, this very, like, mom that I really admired and like thought she was really cool and uh, when my dad was out of town or or just not home she could be fun and she could be goofy and she could be uh, relaxed and chill and and like I enjoyed her as a person um, and so just this very deep sadness that all of that now feels gone, just like completely erased. Like her, that I, that side of her identity is gone. Um, and so I feel like the children maybe allowed her to retain some of that aspect of her humanity. And then once there were no kids at home, it became all him. And then it became all just enmeshment with my father, which is very, very, very sad, very, very tragic. And I think that's a common experience for folks when you have that one person that you do connect with when they choose the abuser, when they choose the the cult leader, uh, when they choose the abusive church over you, that's far more painful, honestly, than anything that my dad did, without a doubt. Wow. Sorry you're in that situation. So just as we're, we're finishing up, because I know we just have a few moments left, I wanted to ask you if there was something else you wanted to share with us. Of course, I want you to be able to talk about all the things that you're doing now. But if there was another message you wanted to be able to share with the listeners before we go into talking about your online presence, et cetera. Yeah, maybe just like kind of wrapping up just the part about my mother and then just in general, when we leave these spaces and people we love are left behind, if you don't feel like you have the energy to continue reaching out and attempting to reason with them and save them, you don't have to. You are not doing something wrong by choosing your safety and your well-being and and that that's okay to do that. There's going to be a lot of guilt for either going no contact or limited contact. But if it's impacting your recovery, you're allowed 
to to create that distance. You're not a bad person for doing that. Um, that's something that I have had to learn um, of just like letting go of relationships. Um, and it doesn't have to be dramatic and violent. It can just be this slowly, sl- we slowly let this go. It's really hard. I'm not minimizing it at all, but you're allowed to choose your recovery. You're allowed to choose yourself. Mm, that's very important. Very important. Okay. And so then for you, for the work that you're doing now and the things that people can find that you've done, that you've written, all of it. So go for it. Tell us all about it. Yeah. So Tears of Eden as main social media platform is the Ad Uncertain podcast on Instagram. And that is where we post most things social related. And I think I forgot to mention that there is a podcast at the top of the episode, but Tears of Eden does have a podcast called Uncertain that is for providing resources for survivors. And we have survivor stories and authors and artists and experts, professionals, mental health professionals come on and just provide stories and resources for folks who are are leaving or have left um, and so that's probably our main our main way that people find us. And then uh, my personal website is katherinespearing.com. Just come and come and hang out and reach out. And this is this is what I do all day, all day, all day. All day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing. So, yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for for sharing so much with us and so much that's so heartfelt as well. And insightful. So thank you again for today. Thank you. One more thing before you go. So Catherine, has had quite an interesting background and a lot of experiences that make her very qualified to talk about what she talked about today. It is very interesting to hear about her stories of having to deal with misogyny and patriarchy. That is something that comes up over and over and over again on this podcast and others And in the therapy work that I do, where not only are women given this very unfortunate vision of how life is a powerless thing, how their life is filled with forfeiting your power, your abilities to have a say, your ability to protect yourself, your ability to say no, your ability to even have a feeling and express it. If it's something unhappy, there is so much also that the men I work with have to deal with coming out of patriarchal societies, coming out of being raised with misogyny. They've had to learn that a woman is an equal. They've had to learn that their daughters matter as much as their sons. They've had to learn that a woman's body belongs to her and her alone and her decisions are hers and hers alone. And so it's a challenge, actually, for both men and women, for boys and girls, people of any age coming out of these groups to relearn that very indoctrinated way of thinking. Seems to be a challenge for everyone. But it's an important challenge, and it's important to get past it so you know how to be in the world in a way that's respectful where you learn also that you deserve respect and you learn that the other person deserves your respect. This is something that is difficult for a lot of people. For women coming out of these societies, they will sometimes think that there's something wrong with them, that they need to be told what to do in order to make the right decision, that left to their own devices, they'll make the wrong one, or that they can't be trusted. And boys will often develop this sense of entitlement that a woman owes them something. A woman owes them their body. A woman owes them respect, no matter how they treat them. And these are things that are going to get you into trouble in the world outside. And for good reason. 
There are people now, luckily, in the next generations who are learning more about the fact that you have to ask someone before you touch them. You have to ask someone before you kiss them. You have to give your permission before you are kissed. That's a new kind of idea. And in some places, in some countries, still not at all on the radar. And in some religious communities and others, still not anywhere on the radar. One of the things that I wanted to make sure, though, to talk about before we finished up today was this idea that Catherine wanted to make clear that even though her religious teachings and the Bible talk about misogyny and patriarchy and have a lot of different ideas in them that she does not agree with any longer, she still loves the Bible, and it still speaks to her. And I guess it still has lessons to teach, and it still feels holy. One does not need to give up everything. One does not need to hate something in order to be free from the bad parts of it. You don't have to apply the same black and white thinking in terms of your healing as you were given when you were in a church or a Bible-based kind of cultic group. You don't have to continue with black and white thinking, otherwise known as dichotomous thinking. When you are moving on from something, you can say, you know, there are things that I truly detested about this, and there are things that really were wrong, but there were things that I really liked and things that were good lessons, and I want to hold on to those. And as part of you being able to be a free person and having your critical thinking, that is your right to do. As long as it's not overwhelming or confusing, too contradictory, and it kind of plays with your head. But there are a number of people who have said, I really love the idea of do unto others, but mm, spare the rod, spoil the child. No, thank you. So can I hold on to one without the other? And my answer is yes. But if you get involved in a church that tells you you need to be able to believe in both, but one is against your conscience while the other isn't, that's not the right church for you. And that's your choice. And so I congratulate Catherine on not only breaking free, gaining her power back, having her own individual way of approaching this by holding on to some things and leaving the rest, but through starting an organization that has been wonderful for so many people. Thank you, Catherine, for being on the show and for teaching us a lot. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrinationpodcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.